You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this week, Wesley and I were asked to go to a meeting at the Capitol building. And as I was getting dressed, I caught myself saying out loud to Wesley, I really am glad we don't have to wear suits every day. Uh, I then put on my suit to get ready for the Capitol, and I looked in the mirror and I said, dang, suits really do uh, make you look uh, quite, quite good. <laughs> Eventually, I got inside the Capitol, uh, Wesley and I both, and literally... No one was wearing suits inside that building. I've been there a few times in my life, but I have no idea what was going on that day. It essentially was like Walmart. It was very casual inside. Really, only the Capitol Police were dressed. Now, we're a come-as-you-are kind of church. You're free to wear a hoodie here, a T-shirt, or a suit. We really don't care. This isn't work for most of you. But... How people are dressed for work can say a lot about their organization. At the Capitol, there's generally, particularly, a way that the people who work inside, how they dress, and it says something about that organization. It's professionalism, it's sacredness, and say at a place like Applebee's, don't we all miss Applebee's here in the District of Columbia, there's a particular way that the waiters and the waitresses dress, and it says something about that organization, that restaurant, the casualness, the culture there. For work, we generally dress ourselves in a way that describes who we are, what we do, and what our organization is in some way. I say all of this this morning because we are looking at the most explicit how to dress for work and what to do passages in the Bible. We're looking at God's plans, part two, for his temporary house in the wilderness called the tabernacle. It's Yahweh's house. Last week we saw how God gave instructions for how it's supposed to look, what's supposed to be inside. We looked at the symbolism of those items and the structure, and this week we'll see how the workers inside are supposed to dress and what they're supposed to do. And what we'll find this morning is that just like when we dress in a particular way, we end up representing something, so God's design for his workers, how they're dressed and what they do, ends up representing him in a powerful way. It represents who he is and the kind of relationship that he wants with us. It's kind of a visual aid for who he is, the way that these uniforms are made and what the workers are supposed to do teaches us something about his character and how we experience him. And so that's really the main point of this text and really the main point of this sermon. The old tabernacle shows us the living God. The ancient, now-gone tabernacle and its workers, how they were dressed, what they do, teaches us 
something about the forever living existent God, who he is and how we experience him today. Now, my main point uh, is up on the screen, but my, uh, my other points that will flow from this text are also going to be up on the screen. This is a difficult passage here at King's Church. We believe the Bible. We don't skip hard passages, and today is no exception. Uh, in point one, we'll see the clothes of the priest. We'll see that in Exodus 28 through 29. Point two, we'll see the consecration of the priests. We'll see that in Exodus 28 through 29 as well. And then finally, we'll see the reality of the priests as we close out this sermon this morning. Now, for those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time, or maybe you've been in and out over the last few weeks, as a church, we have been studying the book of Exodus. In the first half of the book of Exodus, we meet the God who literally rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then in the second half of Exodus, where we find ourselves this morning, we meet the God who rescues his people Israel by getting Egypt, the old ways, out of their hearts. Said another way, God gets them out of Egypt in the first half of this book, And in the second half, he's getting Egypt, the old ways, bad habits, compromise, darkness, sin. He's getting that out of their hearts. We saw a few weeks ago how after about a year of wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, Moses leads God's people, the Hebrews, to the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, At this mountain, this famous mountain, God initiates a covenant relationship with his people. He says that if they agree to the terms of the covenant, they'll be so shaped by his ethics, by his law, by his ways, that they'll become a kingdom of priests. That is, they'll become God's representatives to the other nations, showing what he's like, who he is, and what he's all about. The Hebrew people eagerly agree, we read in the book of Exodus, and so Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. And on the top of the mountain, we see quite a scene. God appears in the form of clouds and thunder and lightning. It's a powerful scene. And there on the mountain, God opens with the basic terms of the relationship by explaining the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how God and Israel will relate to one another. Moses writes all of these down, and he goes down the mountain and shares it with the people, and again, they eagerly accept. They agree. And so once they do, God takes this relationship a step further. He tells Moses that he wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants to be with them. And so what follows is seven very detailed chapters of instructions Instructions on God's temporary house, this thing called the tabernacle. Up on the screen, you'll be reminded of how last week we looked at the items and the structure of that tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar. There's a tent there in the center of that structure with an outer room called the holy place. And in the holy place, there's a special lamp. There's a special table there. And then, of course, there is this inner room called the Holy 
of holies or the most holy place. And there's a special chest or box there that contains the law and a lid that goes on that box called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And this is, of course, where God would appear in power. It was the the burning hot seat of God's presence. Now, this tabernacle, in every way, as we read the pages of Exodus, represents a mini Eden. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the entrance of the tabernacle intentionally faces east. Paralleling Eden, there is a symbolic angel artwork that guards the entrance. There's gold in this tabernacle. The lampstand inside the tent looks like the tree of life. The law inside the ark represents the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's a picture in some way of God's initiation to start or restart relationship with human beings. It's his way of starting a recovery of the human race. Today, we're going to look, as I mentioned, at the specific people that were called to be workers inside of this structure, this house. They're essentially domestic workers. They're God's priests, which really leads us to this first point, the clothes of the priests. Verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So God has been talking to Moses. He's been giving him instructions on how to build his house. And now he says that Moses' brother Aaron and his sons have been uniquely selected to serve as priests. Now, a priest in the Old Testament acts as a mediator. A mediator is essentially a go-between. It's a middleman or a moderator. In their clothing, in their words, in their lives, these priests represent God and all his holiness, all his splendor to the people. And in their rituals, in their sacrifices, and in their prayers that these priests would make to God, they represent the people to God. The passage continues, verse 2. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. In other words, God is saying clothes are going to make my man. Aaron needs some style. He's plain. His his look has to be special. It's got to pop. Verse 3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate or set him apart for my priesthood. In other words, God's saying, go round up the artists, go round up the designers. He's poured out his spirit on some of them, not so that they can knock on the doors to share the gospel, but so that they can do good art that furthers God's redemption in the world. That's a sermon for another day. Verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So we see a description 
a description of several pieces of clothing that Aaron is specifically to wear, and his sons would have also had a specific look, but not as decked out as Aaron. Verse 36 through 38 also adds another piece, a medallion on the front of the tunic. Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. And finally, we see really the eighth item. You can't go commando, so we see some underwear. Verse 42 and 43. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. So there's eight really unique pieces to Aaron's new outfit. It's going to be up on the screen. It's a little bit interesting, but it becomes known as the uniform of the high priest, a very important figure in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So this morning, I want to take a brief look at each of these items. There's eight, as mentioned, and we'll start with this ephod. Uh, the ephod is like a double-sided apron. Particularly important is verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So on the shoulders of this ephod would be these precious stones. And on these precious stones would be the names of the original 12 sons of Jacob. It's a reminder that even though they were imperfect, that God's people were precious to God. Second, the breastplate. Verse 15, you shall make a breastplate of judgment, or in the Hebrew, a breastplate of decision. Verse 17, you shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. Verse 21, there shall be 12 sons, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. Now, interestingly, these 12 stones mentioned here also appear in the Garden of Eden and in Revelation. It's symbolic for God's people, again, who are extremely valuable to God. Aaron is walking into the presence of God, and on his shoulders and on his heart, he represents the people of God to God. Verse, uh, verse 33, we see the robe. Uh, this was a blue robe that was worn under this ephod or this breastplate, and particularly interesting is the bells in verse 33. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple with bells of gold between them. Verse 34, a golden bell and a pomegranate. Verse 35, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. The idea here is that the high priest would be heard when he was in the holy place ministering. 
Uh, if the bells were to stop jingling, that meant he was dead. Uh, the bells would have reminded him of the holy nature of his particular work. Fourth, fifth, and sixth, we see the tunic, the turban, and the sash. We read about these all in verse 39. Uh, many of these were made and were also items that Aaron's sons would have worn. Uh, they would have formed a base for the outfit, and it kept it all together. Item seven, the medallion or the, on the turban. Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. Verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead. Now, this would have certainly caught a lot of eyes. If anyone missed what the tabernacle and what this outfit is for, well, it's right there in front of their eyes. Holiness, God being known and people being made holy, people being made whole. And finally, item number eight, the underwear, verse 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. The picture there is that they would have to be covered in their meeting with God. Essentially, you don't, uh, you don't go commando if you go to the White House or the Taj Mahal. There's a, there, this is very similar. It draws back to the book of Genesis, where the first thing God does is cover the people's nakedness. He covers their nakedness with clothing. Now, there's a whole lot of takeaways here, but one big takeaway is that we matter to a holy God. Uh, he is the king. He's holy, he's all-powerful and all-knowing, but he's the king who cares. And if we know him this morning, we are precious to God like pricey diamonds. It's not fluff to say this, but he cares for us this morning. He hasn't forgotten us this morning. He cares for you. He hasn't forgotten you. We're not defined by one bad season or trying season in our lives. God's love for us is not invalidated by difficult circumstances this morning. We are not under God's wrath if we find ourselves in Christ this morning, but we are under his mercy. A mercy where it's okay to not be okay, but if you know him, there is a joy that's rooted in all that he is that can't be shaken a joy rooted in the fact that he cares for us, that he knows our names, that we are precious to him, and he loves us. Now, as this text continues, we find that there is a purpose for this elaborate, interesting, and detailed uniform. Of course, the purpose was that God was consecrating Aaron and his sons. This passage is very priestly, we see our second point this morning, the consecration of the priests. Chapter 28, verse 41, You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. 29.7, You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Verse 9, You shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Consecration essentially means to set apart as holy. It means that through their calling, 
through their particular uniform, God was designating them as sacred. They now represent the people to God, and they represent God to the people. This, of course, was done by officially ordaining them. In Hebrew, that word means to fill their hands, and they were certainly filled now with a job description. And specifically, that meant for Aaron, this was done by anointing him, which meant smearing something on him or pouring something on him like oil. Essentially, to be anointed was symbolic of God's spirit coming down on him. Uh, The Hebrew word there for anoint is this verb, mashak, which is where we get the word mashiach, which means messiah or anointed one. Uh, The Greek translation would be Christos or in English, Christ. But what really fills the rest of this chapter isn't ordinations or anointings. It's something much more intense. Notice verse 1 of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, or that is the tabernacle. This chapter essentially continues, and for a long 50 or so verses, it is filled with blood. A lot of blood. First, there's a bull, as mentioned, that they lay their hands on, and then they slaughter this bull at the entrance of the tabernacle. Then we find out that there's two rams, and what they were to do is put their hands on these rams and then to slaughter them one for a burnt offering, and another for an ordination offering. Then these priests would take parts of that blood and they would sprinkle it on their body and on their clothes, and then they would eat that second ram that they killed for the ordination offering. And then for seven days, they would repeat this process. Hands on the bull, slaughter the bull, blood everywhere. Hands on the rams, slaughter the rams, blood everywhere, eat that second ram. Finally, once they were ordained, the blood doesn't stop. Their job was now to slaughter a lamb in the morning and to slaughter a lamb at night, every single day, non-stop. And Aaron, especially one day a year, was called to slaughter several animals. The blood essentially just keeps flowing in chapter 29. It's gory. It's graphic. It's brutal. Now, this is not the Bible being primitive. The Hebrews were not a primitive, bloodthirsty society. Blood back then would have had a very similar meaning as it does today. If you have blood flowing out of your mouth or spewing out of your throat, that is a bad sign. It means that something is broken. Something is not right. As I was working on this message yesterday, this has never happened before, but literally as I was typing this, blood started oozing out of my nose. It was quite the the object lesson for me in that moment. It means that something isn't right. There's something broken in my body or 
someone's body at the time. Blood also to the ancients and even still today symbolizes guilt. There's many, many places in literature where we find the phrases, you have blood on your hands or your blood is on your own head. In that sense, it means you're responsible. It means that there is guilt. So this blood flowing everywhere would have been a shock to their eyes at first, just like perhaps it's a shock to our eyes. It's graphic, it's intense, but it's teaching something. And what's being taught is that what's wrong with life on this earth is very, very serious. What's wrong with life on this earth is very, very serious. The blood flowing everywhere would have screamed this reality. Education, uplifting life talks, fluff, religion, morality, therapy, social change, politics, and community, all those things might be helpful, but they can't solve the issue. The brokenness, the woundedness, the shame, and the guilt of life is too deep. It's so deep that the solution has to be deep. And the solution is something called substitutionary atonement. This is the heart of biblical Judaism as well as Christianity. In substitutionary atonement, God gives the solution to the brokenness, the woundedness, the shame, and the deep guilt of the human soul. Isaiah 1 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In substitutionary atonement, the priest would put his hand on this unblemished, perfect animal. And it was symbolic for how their own sin, their own guilt, their own dirty record was being transferred to someone else. And that someone else, this unblemished animal, would receive the penalty that they deserved. Then that blood of that someone else, that unblemished animal, that perfect animal, it was symbolic of cleansing or washing that person from unholiness, from their brokenness, from their pain. The priests had to do this every day. Aaron had to do this. They were imperfect. They needed the cleansing blood of the animals that God designated as substitutes to wash over them. They needed their own sin atoned for. From there, every day and every night, they would serve as representatives of the people to God. They would lay their hands on these lambs and they would slaughter them. And they would do this over and over and over. It was symbolically to atone for the sins of the people, to symbolically wash the sins of the people away. And notably, once a year, Aaron, who becomes this high priest figure, would go into this holy of holies to meet God. He would meet God on behalf of all the people. He would, he would go as their representative, and he would bring blood. It was a picture, again, of how through sacrifice there was a way to pay down the debt of sin. 
to be cleansed from sin, to have a relationship with the holy God. But it was through someone else's blood, through an alternate, through a substitute. Now, time goes on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and there's lots of sacrifices. The blood is flowing in Israel. The tabernacle eventually becomes the temple, and the high priest stays as a really important figure. But there's some tension. There's some cliffhangers that we find as we read the pages of the Old Testament. There is no answer for how people could ever get back to Eden. How do we walk with God in the cool of day again? There's no answer for how long do we keep doing these sacrifices? Can these animal sacrifices actually take away human sin? Which really leads us to the third and final point this morning the reality of the priests. Thousands of years after the book of Exodus, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, and he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the final prophet, the true king, and the priest of priests, the highest priest. No one ever speaks like him. No one ever does the things he does. He proves it in every way and then rises from the dead. In the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews has in mind the book of Exodus. He has in mind Aaron. He has in mind this passage that we've looked at this morning. He has in mind the tabernacle. But says that Jesus in every way is better than Aaron. That the high priest and the sacrifices were symbolic but that Jesus is the reality. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus is the high priest of our confession, Hebrews 3.1. He's the great high priest, 4.14. He's a high priest forever, 6.20. Jesus is the high priest of the good things that have come, 9.11. And Jesus is the great high priest over the household of God, Hebrews 10, verse 21. Jesus is better in every way. He's better in holiness. Unlike Aaron and the other high priest, Jesus didn't need to make sacrifices for himself. He never failed. He was righteous and sinless. And unlike Aaron, Jesus doesn't wear a holy outfit. He's clothed in the robes of righteousness. He has perfect holiness in his heart. Hebrews 1 says he's clothed in the glory of God. He represents God to us like no one else. He's better in his anointing. Jesus isn't just anointed with oil, but in the New Testament we find that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is the anointed one the Savior of the world, the one whom God the Father pours out his Spirit on and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is better in representation. Aaron wore God's people's names in precious gems on his shoulders and on his heart before God. Everyone knew that he represented them before God. But Jesus comes and he has his name, he has our names, 
written on his heart. Isaiah 49 literally says, our names are inscribed on his hands. He represents us better than Aaron ever could. He carries a cross on his shoulders and he carries us in his heart to God the Father forever. And finally, Jesus is better in sympathy. We may be tempted to think that a sinful priest would be able to understand our experiences better than a sinless priest. But it's Jesus' sinlessness that truly makes him capable of empathy towards us this morning. Uh, Those of us who counsel know at times it's possible to have your own junk get in the way of counseling or helping others. But Jesus is the only one who never gets wrapped up in himself. His heart goes completely out to us. He was tempted in every way, yet he's without sin. He has all the experiences that create sympathy and none of the sins that eat up sympathy. He's better in every way. He's the final mediator. He's the go-between, the middleman between God and man, the great high priest. And not only is he better in every way this morning, but he is the final sacrifice, the very person in which all the sacrifices pointed to. He is the reality. The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross is graphic. It's intense but it's teaching us something. And what's being taught is that what's wrong with life on this earth is serious. It's really, really serious. The brokenness and the woundedness, the shame and guilt of life is deep. It's so deep that the solution has to be deep. And the solution is substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the ultimate example of this type of atonement. He is the solution to the brokenness, to the woundedness, to the shame, and to the guilt of the human soul. In substitutionary atonement, God puts his hands on the unblemished or on the perfect son of God. It wasn't symbolic this time. It was real. He did this so our sin, so that our dirty record could be transferred to someone else. And that someone else, the unblemished Son of God, received the penalty that we deserve. The blood of someone else, the unblemished Jesus Christ, cleanses us and washes us this morning of our unholiness, of our shame, of our brokenness. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he goes into the holy of holies to meet God. He meets God on behalf of us his people, as our representative, but he brings his own blood. Through his sacrifice, there is a way to pay down debt, the debt of sin, to be cleansed from our sin and have relationship with God. It's through his blood, through faith in him, and through faith in him this morning, trust in him this morning, he can cleanse you of your shame. He can forgive you of your guilt. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our sin from us. He can bring you to God as a one who is holy, who's been forgiven, who's been cleansed. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.